Volume 4 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Burlinson. Volume 4 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Alcibiades. The family of Alcibiades, it is thought, may be traced back to Eurysicus, the son of Aias, as its founder. And on his mother's side he was an Alcmeonid, being the son of Dionomachy, the daughter of Megacles. His father, Clinius, fitted out a trireme at his own cost, and fought it gloriously at Artemisium. He was afterwards slain at Coronea, fighting the Boeotians, and Alcibiades was therefore reared as the ward of Pericles and Ariphron, the sons of Xanthippus, his near kinsman. It is said, and with good reason, that the favor and affection which Socrates showed him contributed not a little to his reputation. Certain it is that Nicias, Demosthenes, Lamachus, Formio, Thrasybulus, and Theramenes were prominent men and his contemporaries, and yet we cannot so much as name the mother of any of them, whereas in the case of Alcibiades, we even know that his nurse, who was a Spartan woman, was called Amicla, and his tutor Zopyrus. The one fact is mentioned by Antisthenes, the other by Plato. As regards the beauty of Alcibiades, it is perhaps unnecessary to say aught, except that it flowered out of each successive season of his bodily growth, and made him, alike in boyhood, youth, and manhood, lovely and pleasant. The saying of Euripides, that beauty's autumn too is beautiful, is not always true, but it was certainly the case with Alcibiades, as with few besides, because of his excellent natural parts. Even the list that he had became his speech, they say, and made his talk persuasive and full of charm. Aristophanes notices this lisp of his in the verses wherein he ridicules theorists. Sosius. Then Alcibiades came to me with a lisp. Said he, Quimach Theoquas, what a quaven's head he has. Xanthius. That lisp of Alcibiades hit the mark for once. And Archippus ridiculing the son of Alcibiades, says, He walks with utter wantonness, trailing his long robe behind him, that he may be thought the very picture of his father. Yes, he slants his neck awry and overworks the lisp. His character in later life displayed many inconsistencies and marked changes, as was natural amid his vast undertakings and varied fortunes. He was naturally a man of many strong passions, the mightiest of which, 
were the love of rivalry and the love of preeminence. This is clear from the stories recorded of his boyhood. He was once hard-pressed in wrestling, and to save himself from getting a fall, set his teeth in his opponent's arms, where they clutched him and was like to have bitten through them. His adversary, letting go his hold, cried, You bite Alcibiades as women do. Not I, said Alcibiades, but as lions do. While still a boy, he was playing knucklebones in the narrow street, and just as it was his turn to throw, a heavy-laden wagon came along. In the first place, he bade the driver halt, since his cast lay right in the path of the wagon. The driver, however, was a boorish fellow, and paid no heed to him, but drove his team along. Whereupon, while the other boys scattered out of the way, Alcibiades threw himself flat on his face in front of the team, stretched himself out at full length, and bade the driver go on if he pleased. At this the fellow pulled up his beasts sharply, in terror. The spectators, too, were affrighted, and ran with shouts to help the boy. At school he usually paid due heed to his teachers, but he refused to play the flute, holding it to be an ignoble and illiberal thing. The use of the plectrum and the lyre, he argued, wrought no havoc with the bearing and appearance which were becoming to a gentleman. But let a man go to blowing on a flute, and even his own kinsman could scarcely recognize his features. Moreover, the lyre blended its tones with the voice or song of its master, whereas the flute closed and barricaded the mouth, robbing its master both of voice and speech. Flutes, then, said he, for the son of Thebes. They know not how to converse. But we Athenians, as our fathers say, have Athene for foundress and Apollo for patron, one of whom cast the flute away in disgust, and the other flayed the presumptuous flute-player. Thus, half in jest and half in earnest, Alcibiades emancipated himself from this discipline, and the rest of the boys as well. For word soon made its way to them that Alcibiades loathed the art of flute-playing, and scoffed at its disciples, and rightly too. Wherefore the flute was dropped entirely from the program of a liberal education, and was altogether despised. Among the calumnies which Antiphon heaps upon him, it is recorded that, when he was a boy, he ran away from home to Democritus, one of his lovers, and that Ariphron was all for having him proclaimed by town crier as a castaway. But Pericles would not suffer it. If he is dead, said he, we shall know it only a day the sooner for the proclamation. Whereas, if he is alive, he will, in consequence of it, be as good as dead for the rest of his life. Antiphon says also that with a blow of his stick, he slew one of his attendants in the palastra of Sabertius. But these things are perhaps unworthy of belief, 
coming as they do from one who admits that he hated Alcibiades and abused him accordingly. It was not long before many men of high birth clustered about him and paid him their attentions. Most of them were plainly smitten with his brilliant youthful beauty and fondly courted him. But it was the love which Socrates had for him that bore strong testimony to the boy's native excellence and good parts. These Socrates saw radiantly manifest in his outward person, and, fearful of the influence upon him of wealth and rank, and the throng of citizens, foreigners, and allies, who sought to preempt his affections by flattery and favor, he was fain to protect him, and not suffer such a fair, flowering plant to cast its native fruit to perdition. For there is no man whom fortune so envelops and compasses about with the so-called good things of life that he cannot be reached by the bold and caustic reasonings of philosophy, and pierced to the heart. And so it was that Alcibiades, although he was pampered from the very first, and was prevented by the companions who sought only to please him, from giving ear to one who would instruct and train him, nevertheless, through the goodness of his parts, at last saw all that was in Socrates, and clave to him, putting away his rich and famous lovers and speedily, from choosing such an associate, and giving ear to the words of a lover who was in the chase for no unmanly pleasures, and begged no kisses and embraces, but sought to expose the weakness of his soul and rebuke his vain and foolish pride. He crouched, the warrior bird, like slave with drooping wings, and he came to think that the work of Socrates was really a kind of provision of the gods for the care and salvation of youth. Thus, by despising himself, admiring his friend, loving that friend's kindly solicitude, and revering his excellence, he insensibly acquired an image of love, as Plato says, to match love and all were amazed to see him eating, exercising, and tenting with Socrates, while he was harsh and stubborn with the rest of his lovers. Some of these he actually treated with the greatest insolence, as, for example, Anitus, the son of Anthemion. This man was a lover of his, who, entertaining some friends, asked Alcibiades also to the dinner. Alcibiades declined the invitation, but after having drunk deep at home with some friends, went in revel rout to the house of Anitus, took his stand at the door of the man's chamber, and observing the tables full of gold and silver beakers, ordered his slaves to take half of them and carry them home for him. He did not deign to go in, but played this prank and was off. The guests were naturally indignant, and declared that Alcibiades had treated Anitus with gross and overweening insolence. 
Not so, said Anatus, but with moderation and kindness. He might have taken all there were. He has left us half. He treated the rest of his lovers also after this fashion. There was one man, however, a resident alien, as they say, and not possessed of much, who sold all that he had, and brought the hundred staters which he got for it to Alcibiades, begging him to accept them. Alcibiades burst out with delight at this, and invited the man to dinner. After feasting him and showing him every kindness, he gave him back his gold, and charged him on the morrow to complete with the farmers of the public revenues and outbid them all. The man protested because the purchase demanded a capital of many talents, but Alcibiades threatened to have him scourged if he did not do it, because he cherished some private grudge against the ordinary contractors. In the morning, accordingly, the alien went into the marketplace and increased the usual bid for the public lands by a talent. The contractors clustered angrily about him and bade him name his surety, supposing that he could find none. The man was confounded and began to draw back, when Alcibiades, standing afar off, cried to the magistrates, Put my name down, he is a friend of mine, I will be his surety. When the contractors heard this, they were at their wits' end, for they were in the habit of paying what they owed on a first purchase with the profits of a second, and saw no way out of their difficulty. Accordingly, they besought the man to withdraw his bid, and offered him money to do so but Alcibiades would not suffer him to take less than a talent. On their offering the man the talent, he bade him take it and withdraw. To this lover he was of service in such a way. But the love of Socrates, though it had many powerful rivals, somehow mastered Alcibiades, for he was of good natural parts, and the words of his teacher took hold of him and wrung his heart and brought tears to his eyes, but sometimes he would surrender himself to the flatterers who tempted him with many pleasures, and slip away from Socrates, and suffer himself to be actually hunted down by him like a runaway slave. And yet he feared and reverenced Socrates alone, and despised the rest of his lovers. It was Cleanthes who said that, any one beloved of him must be downed, as the wrestlers say, by the ears alone, though offering to rival lovers many other holds which he himself would scorn to take, meaning the various lusts of the body. And Alcibiades was certainly prone to be led away into pleasure. That lawless self-indulgence of his, of which Thucydides speaks, leads one to suspect this. However, it was rather his love of distinction and love of fame to which his corruptors appealed, and thereby plunged him all too soon into the ways of presumptuous scheming, persuading him that he had only to enter public life, and he would straightway cast into total eclipse the ordinary generals and public leaders, 
and not only that, he would even surpass Pericles in power and reputation among the Hellenes. Accordingly, just as iron, which has been softened in the fire, is hardened again by cold water, and has its particles compacted together, so Alcibiades, whenever Socrates found him filled with vanity and wantonness, was reduced to shape by the master's discourse, and rendered humble and cautious. He learned how great were his deficiencies, and how incomplete his excellence. Once, as he was getting on past boyhood, he accosted a schoolteacher and asked him for a book of Homer. The teacher replied that he had nothing of Homer's, whereupon Alcibiades fetched him a blow with his fist and went his way. Another teacher said he had a Homer, which he had corrected himself. What? said Alcibiades. Are you teaching boys to read when you are competent to edit Homer? You should be training young men. He once wished to see Pericles and went to his house. But he was told that Pericles could not see him. He was studying how to render his accounts to the Athenians. Were it not better for him, said Alcibiades as he went away, to study how not to render his accounts to the Athenians? While still a stripling, he served as a soldier in the campaign of Potidaea, and had Socrates for his tent-mate and comrade in action. A fierce battle took place, wherein both of them distinguished themselves. But when Alcibiades fell wounded, it was Socrates who stood over him and defended him, and with the most conspicuous bravery saved him, armor and all. The prize of valor fell to Socrates, of course, on the justest calculation, but the generals, owing to the high position of Alcibiades, were manifestly anxious to give him the glory of it. Socrates, therefore, wishing to increase his pupil's honorable ambitions, led all the rest in bearing witness to his bravery, and in begging that the crown and the suit of armor be given to him. On another occasion, in the rout of the Athenians which followed the battle of Delium, Alcibiades, on horseback, saw Socrates retreating on foot with a small company, and would not pass by, but rode by his side and defended him, though the enemy were pressing them hard and slaying many. This, however, was a later incident. He once gave Hipponicus a blow with his fist. Hipponicus, the father of Callias, a man of great reputation and influence owing to his wealth and family. Not that he had any quarrel with him, or was a prey to anger, but simply for the joke of the thing, on a wager with some companions. The wanton deed was soon noised about the city, and everybody was indignant, as was natural. Early the next morning Alcibiades went to the house of Hipponicus, knocked at his door, and on being shown into his presence, laid off the cloak he wore, and bade Hipponicus scourge and chastise him as he would. But Hipponicus, 
put away his wrath and forgave him, and afterwards gave him his daughter Hipparete to wife. Some say, however, that it was not Hipponicus, but Callias his son who gave Hipparete to Alcibiades, with a dowry of ten talents, and that afterwards, when she became a mother, Alcibiades extracted other ten talents besides, on the plea that this was the agreement, should children be born. And Callias was so afraid of the scheming of Alcibiades to get his wealth, that he made public proffer to the people of his property and house, in case it should befall him to die without lineal heirs. Hipparete was a decorous and affectionate wife, but being distressed because her husband would consort with courtesans, native and foreign, she left his house and went to live with her brother. Alcibiades did not mind this, but continued his wanton ways, and so she had to put in her plea for divorce to the magistrate, and that not by proxy but in her own person. On her appearing publicly to do this as the law required, Alcibiades came up and seized her and carried her off home with him through the marketplace, no man daring to oppose him or take her from him. She lived with him, moreover, until her death, but she died shortly after this, when Alcibiades was on a voyage to Ephesus. Such violence as this was not thought lawless or cruel at all. Indeed, the law prescribes that the wife who would separate from her husband shall go to court in person to this very end, it would seem, that the husband may have a chance to meet and gain possession of her. Possessing a dog of wonderful size and beauty which had cost him seventy minas, he had its tail cut off, and a beautiful tail it was, too. His comrades chid him for this, and declared that everybody was furious about the dog, and abusive of its owner. But Alcibiades burst out laughing, and said, "'That's just what I want. I want Athens to talk about this, that it may say nothing worse about me.' His first entrance into public life, they say, was connected with a contribution of money to the state, and was not of design. He was passing by when the Athenians were applauding in their assembly, and asked the reason for the applause. On being told that a contribution of money to the state was going on, he went forward to the bima and made a contribution himself. The crowd clapped their hands and shouted for joy, so much so that Alcibiades forgot all about the quail which he was carrying in his cloak, and the bird flew away in a fright. Thereupon the Athenians shouted all the more, and many of them sprang to help him hunt the bird. The one who caught it and gave it back to him was Antiochus, the sea captain, who became, in consequence, a great favorite with Alcibiades. Though great doors to public service were opened to him by his birth, his wealth, and his personal bravery in battle, and though he had many friends and followers, he thought that nothing should give him more influence with the people than the charm of his discourse.
and that he was a powerful speaker, not only do the comic poets testify, but also the most powerful of orators himself, who says in his speech against Medius that Alcibiades was a most able speaker in addition to his other gifts. And if we are to trust Theophrastus, the most versatile and learned of the philosophers, Alcibiades was of all men the most capable of discovering and understanding what was required in a given case. But since he strove to find not only the proper thing to say, but also the proper words and phrases in which to say it, and since in this last regard he was not a man of large resources, he would often stumble in the midst of his speech, come to a stop, and pause a while, a particular phrase eluding him. Then he would resume and proceed with all the caution in the world. His breeds of horses were famous the world over, and so was the number of his racing chariots. No one else ever entered seven of these at the Olympic Games, neither commoner nor king, but he alone. And his coming off first, second, and fourth victor, as Thucydides says, third according to Euripides, transcends in the splendor of its renown all that ambition can aspire to in this field. The ode of Euripides to which I refer runs thus. Thee will I sing, O child of Clinius. The fair thing is victory, but fairest is what no other Hellene has achieved. To run first and second and third in the contest of racing chariots, and to come off unwearied and wreathed with the olive of Zeus, to furnish theme for herald's proclamation. Moreover, this splendor of his at Olympia was made even more conspicuous by the emulous rivalry of the cities in his behalf. The Ephesians equipped him with a tent of magnificent adornment. The Chians furnished him with provender for his horses and with innumerable animals for sacrifice. The Lesbians with wine and other provisions for his unstinted entertainment of the multitude. However, a grave calumny or malpractice on his part connected with this rivalry, was even more in the mouths of men. It is said, namely, that there was at Athens one Diomedes, a reputable man, a friend of Alcibiades, and eagerly desirous of winning a victory at Olympia. He learned that there was a racing chariot at Argos, which was the property of that city, and, knowing that Alcibiades had many friends and was very influential there, got him to buy the chariot. Alcibiades bought it for his friend, and then entered it in the racing lists as his own, bidding Diomedes go hang. Diomedes was full of indignation, and called on gods and men to witness his wrongs. 
It appears also that a lawsuit arose over this matter, and a speech was written by Isocrates for the son of Alcibiades concerning the team of horses. In this speech, however, it is Tisius, not Diomedes, who is the plaintiff. On entering public life, though still a mere stripling, he immediately humbled all the other popular leaders except Phaeax, the son of Erastratus, and Nicias, the son of Nicaratus. These men made him fight hard for what he won. Nicias was already of mature years, and had the reputation of being a most excellent general. But Phaeax, like himself, was just beginning his career, and though of illustrious parentage, was inferior to him in other ways, and particularly as a public speaker. He seemed affable and winning in private conversation, rather than capable of conducting public debates. In fact, he was, as Eupolis says, a prince of talkers, but in speaking most incapable. And there is extant a certain speech written by Phaeax against Alcibiades, wherein, among other things, it is written that the city's numerous ceremonial utensils of gold and silver were all used by Alcibiades at his regular table as though they were his own. Now there was a certain hyperbolus of the Demi Perithodiae, whom Thucydides mentions, as a base fellow, and who afforded all the comic poets, without any exception, constant material for jokes in their plays. But he was unmoved by abuse, and insensible to it owing to his contempt of public opinion. This feeling some call courage and valor, but it is really mere shamelessness and folly. No one liked him, but the people often made use of him when they were eager to besmirch and calumniate men of rank and station. Accordingly, at the time of which I speak, Persuaded by this man, they were about to exercise the vote of ostracism, by which they cripple and banish whatever man from time to time may have too much reputation and influence in the city to please them, assuaging thus their envy rather than their fear. When it was clear that the ostracism would fall on one of three men, Phaeax, Alcibiades, or Nicias. Alcibiades had a conference with Nicias, united their two parties into one, and turned the vote of ostracism upon Hyperbolus. Some say, however, that it was not Nicias, but Phaeax, with whom Alcibiades had the conference, which resulted in winning over that leader's party, and banishing Hyperbolus, who could have had no inkling of his fate. 
for no worthless or disreputable fellow had ever before fallen under this condemnation of ostracism. As Plato, the comic poet, has somewhere said in speaking of hyperbolus, and yet he suffered worthy fate for men of old, a fate unworthy though of him and of his brands, for such as he the ostracon was ne'er devised. However, the facts which have been ascertained about this case have been stated more at length elsewhere. Alcibiades was sore distressed to see Nicias no less admired by his enemies than honored by his fellow citizens. For although Alcibiades was resident counsel for the Lacedaemonians at Athens, and had ministered to their men who had been taken prisoners at Pylos, still they felt that it was chiefly due to Nicias that they had obtained a peace, and the final surrender of those men, and so they lavished their regard upon him. And Hellenes everywhere said that it was Pericles who had plunged them into war, but Nicias who had delivered them out of it, and most men called the peace the peace of Nicias. Alcibiades was therefore distressed beyond measure, and in his envy planned a violation of the solemn treaty. To begin with, he saw that the Argives hated and feared the Spartans, and sought to be rid of them. So he secretly held out hopes to them of an alliance with Athens, and encouraged them, by conferences with the chief men of their popular party, not to fear nor yield to the Lacedaemonians, but to look to Athens and await her action, since she was now all but repentant, and desirous of abandoning the peace which she had made with Sparta. And again, when the Lacedaemonians made a separate alliance with the Boeotians, and delivered up Panactum to the Athenians not intact, as they were bound to do by the treaty, but dismantled, he took advantage of the Athenians' wrath at this to embitter them yet more. He raised a tumult in the assembly against Nicias, and slandered him with accusations all too plausible. Nicias himself, he said, when he was general, had refused to capture the enemy's men, who were cut off on the island of Sphecteria. And when others had captured them, he had released and given them back to the Lacedaemonians, whose favor he sought. And then he did not persuade those same Lacedaemonians, tried friend of theirs as he was, not to make a separate alliance with the Boeotians, or even with the Corinthians, and yet whenever any Hellenes wished to be friends and allies of Athens, he tried to prevent it, unless it were the good pleasure of the Lacedaemonians. 